Good morning. All you guys survived your food comas from uh, Thursday. I got to tell you, if you didn't come here on Wednesday night, you missed some good pie. I'm just saying, not to mention the great fellowship and the time of worship together. But anyways, next year you can maybe make it. Um, We uh, are starting our Advent series. And so if you missed some some of the messages in the last series, the God Question series, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I really like that one and ask me if it's can you download it and things like that. And so um, if you want to listen to that or download those or, or whatever you want to do, you can do that on our website. There's a way to, to do both of those things. And um, so we encourage you to do that. But um, we're going to dig into God's word this morning as we look at uh, the prophesied advent of Jesus, uh, his arrival, if you will. Uh, we're going to begin to look at that over the next few weeks. Uh, and we have some special services coming up as well, including, by the way, um, our youth director Crosby is going to preach next week. And um, yeah, my wife's like, oh, thank you, Jesus. But uh, anyways, uh, it's going to be great. And uh, so he's going he's gonna to be sharing with us. And then in a couple weeks, our children's uh, program is going to be sharing with us. And, and, and so it's going to be a, a great time. But let's pray before we dig into God's word this morning. Dear God, thank you so much thank, for your word. Thank you for Jesus, who is your word, the logos, the, the word who, who, who took on human flesh. Lord, as we think about him, think about his arrival uh, this season, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open to what this means to us, and, and Lord, that we truly would find our hope in him, our Savior. And Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, that our minds would understand well what you would have for us, and that our hearts would embrace that message. I pray these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. National Survey on Drug Use and Health uh, did a survey uh, not, not too long ago, and it, they surveyed about 600,000 Americans. And, and here's some of the findings uh, that, they, that they found. From 2009 to 2017, major depression among 20 to 21-year-olds more than doubled. From 2009 to 2017. Rising from 7% to 15%. Depression surged 69% among 16 to 17-year-olds. And then uh, feelings of anxiety and hopelessness jumped 71% among 18 to 25-year-olds from 2008 to to 2017. Twice as many 22 to 23-year-olds attempted suicide in 2017 as compared with 2008. And 55% more had suicidal thoughts. By 2017, one out of of five 12 to 17-year-old girls had experienced major depression in the previous year. And the list goes on. And as I read those statistics, I thought, man, you know, that's, not only is that concerning, and it should be, but I began to think about what many people are saying about statistics like this. Because you, you get statistics like this, and then you begin to think, you know, hear the, the, the talking heads, if you will, the, the cultural commentators, and they begin to try to figure out, they ask the question, and rightly so, what is happening? What is going on? Why are so many people struggling with depression and suicide and, and these kinds of things as, at, at a much more significant rate than in, previ- in previous years? And they come up with all kinds of answers to the cause and different kinds of solutions. A lot of times they say things like, 
Like, well, the, the, the culture's changing, and the way that technology is, especially when it comes to social media, it has infiltrated our lives, and well, in one sense, we are more connected than, than ever before. In another sense, we're, we're very isolated from the people standing right next to us, and I think there's probably a little bit of truth to that. They, they, they might begin to talk about, especially when, it's, when we begin to talk about teenagers, and they, and they might begin to talk about how, how the schedule has changed and how there are all these different expectations, and, and, and there's a lot more stress in their lives and, and all of these kinds of things. And I kind of hear that, and I go, well, yes and no. You know, I mean, there, there is certainly a different culture, but, but more stress than boy, if we don't get a good harvest, we're all going to die kind of stress like there once was. You know, I mean, I'm not not so sure I completely buy that argument. But maybe. We'll go with a maybe. Maybe there's some some factors there. There's certainly, certainly cultural factors of various kinds. And I don't think there is one answer to what causes all of this. But I think there might be one answer that is more prevalent than all of those other things, and I'll add my voices to one saying that this might be the most significant thing that we struggle with. I'm not an expert. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know that psychologists have the corner of the market on this either, to be honest with you. But as I began to think about it, and you begin to think about the time of Christmas, I think the answer is not as much about social media. It's not as much about hectic schedules. It's not as, as much about some of those things. I think the cause, the primary root cause of why there seems to be this pandemic of depression and suicide and all of these things that, that are in those kinds of categories is because there's no hope in people's lives. Because the more secular that our society gets, the more we turn away from Jesus, the more we embrace a materialistic or a naturalistic perspective of the world, the more we think that the only life I have is this life, that there's really no life beyond this. The only, the, when the only thing we think we have is what we succeed in today, in other words, as we go through this life and we have this failure or that failure in our life, this downfall or that downfall in our life, and we begin to think that maybe there's no hope because we've lost the hope that we have in Jesus. That's what the Christmas season, at least in part, should remind us of. The hope that we have. There is hope in the arrival of Jesus. And it isn't it isn't that this life will be filled with rose gardens and great accomplishments and all of a sudden, if you believe in Jesus, that this life is easier. But can I just tell you something? That this life isn't the only life. And if we lose that hope, and this is all we have is what's here right now staring us in the face, then certainly all of those things can overcome us. Depression and anxiety and stress and all of those things can become suicidal thoughts or worse. This hope that we have in this season that we find in Jesus, needs to recognize the reality of the, of the life that we live in the here and now. It doesn't, it doesn't pretend that this life doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, when you look around the, this world and you, and you might ask the question, and I think a lot of people do, and, and even though I think I know the answer, most of the time I still ask the question, and maybe you're a little bit like me. What's, 
wrong with the world? What is wrong? Well, the answer is this. We've all been cursed. We've all been cursed. That's the answer. You begin to think about it. We don't, we don't really talk very much in, in terms of, of curse in, 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 in church, especially because you know, I think that brings up in our minds that some kind of like witchcraft or something or, or, or you know, cursing is something that maybe, maybe it's bad language and so we don't talk, we don't use the word curse because it refers to using bad words in, in other contexts or, or, or we think of incantations or something. But yet, we have all been cursed. I mean, that is part of the biblical story. It's, it, that is not something that, that is, is weird or unusual. As a matter of fact, it's something that we find in the opening chapters of Genesis. From the very beginning, when you begin to ask the question, what went wrong? What went wrong is we were cursed. Because God created the universe and he created the garden and he put humankind in the garden and, and Adam and Eve, he created Adam and then out of Adam he created Eve and, and the serpent comes in. You know this story, right? And the serpent tempts Eve and, and she falls into the temptation. Then she goes to Adam and Adam falls into the temptation and they eat the forbidden fruit and it was promised that death would enter the world. It was a death sentence, but it wasn't a death sentence because there was something innate about that fruit. It was a death sentence because it was an offense to God. Because he said, I want to love you and I want you to love me, but you have the choice to reject me. And so there's the fruit and and, and they did. They rejected God. They, they disobeyed him. Now, when I talk about offending God, I, I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, you know, that word offending, I want to use that word, but it has a kind of a different connotation than it used to have. Because when we, we talk about the word offense, like I offended you, what are we saying? I hurt your feelings. Or you offended me. You offended me. <laughs> Not that you did anything wrong necessarily. You just hurt my feelings. And I, I know you all know I am a fragile snowflake, so be gentle with me. Right? But that's kind of what the word offense, offense has come to mean in our, in our culture and in our society. It's kind of a, I hurt your feelings, but that's not how I'm using it. I'm not saying we hurt God's feelings. I don't think, I don't think that's the point. I don't quite, you know, I don't think God's a fragile snowflake like I am. Right? He's, he's not so fragile that... that emotional hurt is, is, is that significant to him. But he is righteous and pure and holy. And we sometimes don't think of God in those terms. We, we want to think of him in other terms. But when we begin to think of him in those terms, as he presents himself to us in scripture, he is righteous, he is holy. And you remember, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, the, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when he encountered God, he feared God because of how holy God was and because of how sinful he was and the sinfulness of the people that he came from. And he feared for his life. And we have lost that. And so when I say we have offended God, I'm saying we've sinned against him. We've done something that undermines his character. We've done something against his righteousness and his holiness. And when we do that, it offends him. Not in an emotional way. I mean, I'm sure he gets upset too. The Bible speaks in those terms as well. But it's an offense against his very nature and what he created us to be. It's an offense. So when Adam and Eve ate that fruit and rejected what God had created, he cursed. Not only did he curse Adam and Eve 
and the ground, but he cursed the serpent. And in that curse to the serpent, we find something that we should not pass over. We should not miss, especially this time of year. So in Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now listen to verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In that sentence, in that verse, we don't just find a curse of the serpent, but we find a promise. Curse, when God curses, he never does it without a promise. God told Adam and Eve that disobedience was a death sentence and they disobeyed him anyways. And this set the pace for the rest of history. We do everything we can to insist that we can live without God. And yet we fail every time we try. Or we try to marginalize the importance of God by recreating God in our own image. We, we want to make God more palatable to us. And so we, we manipulate and twist his characteristics and his nature. And we do it in such a way that we, we all of a sudden begin to like better who God is because we've recreated him. We've adjusted him. We've manipulated him into something that he really isn't. And we continue to disobey. It's not just that Adam and Eve sin. It's that we sin. And we continue to sin. We worship in hopes of making the world a better place. We worship political figures and we worship governments and we worship materialistic types of things and, and possessions. And, and oftentimes we, we worship ourselves. We'll do almost anything to worship almost anything except for the God who actually created everything that is. As John Calvin put it, our hearts are an idol factory. We can pump out idols faster than anything. Find other things to worship, to distract us from actually having to know, love, or interact with God. We manipulate or we limit God's power sometimes. We condemn what is godly so that our own sensibilities are not offended. We, we justify the curse by confirming the original sin in our own lives. We worship all of these things and we do it over and over and over again. The next politician, the, ne the next government policy, the next whatever it is, the next accomplishment in my life will make my life better. It'll fix everything that's wrong. The next boyfriend, the next girlfriend, the next whatever it is that we, we run after and we seek after, thinking that's going to change everything and fix everything. But as the pastor in Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. So we repeat history over and over and over again. But God's curse comes with a promise. God didn't just curse us. He didn't just look at us and go, and go, you deserve this curse. That's the end of the story. He had every right to, by the way. 
He would have been justified if he had come to us and said, look, you rejected what I've given you. If that's what you want, I'll give it to you. You can have it, but that means separation from me. That means we can't be in a loving relationship. You and I can't, can't be in this relationship together. And so I'm cutting you off. You can have this. I've created this for you. I've cursed you. I've cursed the land. I've cursed everything in it. Now you can just live in the curse. He could have done that. He would have been completely justified in doing so. There would have been nothing unjust about it. But that's not what he did because God's curse came with a promise. God curses the man, he curses the woman, he curses the earth. He starts out by cursing the, the, the serpent, but he doesn't leave us without her hope. The curse is given, but it comes with the promise of offspring of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent. This is huge. And so often when we think about prophecies of Jesus, we forget to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. We want to talk about Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9 or, or you know, Micah or all these other ones. And, and those are great and wonderful and they deserve our attention. But we should go back all the way be to the beginning because it reminds us that God never left us without hope. It was always there. From the very beginning, he gave us hope. He gave us hope in a promise fulfilled. He gave us hope in a promise fulfilled. This is so important. Christmas is, if nothing else, a season of hope. How, how many of y'all have watched a Christmas movie already? Be honest. Come on. Yeah, I have two. How many got your tree up? It's decorated. How many did that before Thursday? Jail, jail. No, I'm just kidding. We did ours on Friday, like we were good citizens, you know, waiting, not, not you know, imposing our, our, our pre-Thanksgiving Christmas spirit on anybody. We waited until after Thanksgiving, and then we went out and bought a tree, and I can't, King Supers didn't even have them for sale on, on Friday. I don't understand what was going on there. We had to go somewhere else. We bought a tree, we put it up, we decorated uh, Katrina, and Paul came over, and we had a great time, and, and we watched a really weird Christmas movie. Really, really weird one. But Christmas is a time of hope, and it's intended to be uplifting and tell these heartwarming stories, right? These, these stories, and you turn on whatever movie it is, and, and, and you know, it's, it's the Home Alone one, or, or it's the Miracle on 34th Street, or whatever it is, and, and how they always turn out so great and wonderful in the end. And everything is, 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 is filled with wishful thinking and, and happiness and joy and all of these things, and, and everything's great and wonderful. But in reality, life doesn't always come that way, does it? I'm not saying don't watch Christmas movies. I'm just saying that sometimes we need to be, ask what the truth of Christmas because it's not about movies with happy endings. It's not about buying gifts or cute family pictures. It's not about putting up lights. Christmas has a deeper meaning and it must not be missed. Galatians chapter 4. Paul tells us a part of this deeper meaning that we find in Christmas, starting in verse 4. He says this, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to, son, to sonship. Other, other translations translate this different. As a matter of fact, almost all the other major translations, anyways, translate it a little bit different. I like the words 
the way they translate it better. I don't know if it adds meaning, but in my mind it adds meaning. Maybe just because I'm used to that wording. But they, 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 say, they talk about the fullness of time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. I'm not saying the NIV gets it wrong or anything. I just, I just like the fullness of time. There's something, there's something that's not quite so linear about it, right? It's not like, and then this event happened, and this event happened, and then this event happened, and, there's, and, then, and, and then God sent his son. And certainly there's a, a linear aspect to it, but there seems to be a qualitative aspect as well. The fullness of time. When the stage had been set, when, when, when all of the things had, had happened that needed to happen, when, when, when the foundation was laid for God to begin to build upon, at that point he sent his son, Jesus, who was born of a woman to redeem those under the law. I think there's the qualitative difference about that wording the eternal divine son of god would be born of a woman to accomplish what the law could never accomplish because the law is capable of doing what showing us our sin primarily that's what the law does it shows us where our sin is and we could go oh yeah i see the sin i see that i need a redeemer and and so so god sent the eternal divine son of god who took on human flesh walked among us born of a woman a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the divinity of Jesus. But that's not all there is to Jesus. He was fully human as well. The Messiah, the one who would save Israel, would come by being born of a woman. I love the, the narrative as you read through the Bible and, and, and you, and you kind of see this Messiah coming in the Old Testament as, as you read these different passages. Some of them we will read today or uh, as we approach uh, Christmas, you know, like Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and, and Micah and all these, and you, and you get the sense of this Messiah coming and, and everybody's thinking that finally there's going to be a Messiah and he's going to come and he's going he's to take over the, the world and he's going to rule from a throne and, and that's true, that's going to come, but it's not yet. And, and there's this twist right in the middle of it like, like a good narrative should have and all of a sudden he's, he's born of a woman in a manger, which, by the way, we were decorating yesterday. And doesn't, doesn't this look great? looks really great, doesn't it? Thank you guys for, for help, those of you who helped decorate. And I was looking at our, our manger scene, which we bought a couple years ago. Bruce helped us find this because we used to have an, uh, uh, a scene and they, what, how the figures were like this big. And so, so we, got, we got this. And I, and I was looking at the manger. And I was like, where's Jesus? But I want to comfort you because Mary's holding Jesus, okay? Which is really smart on the people who designed it because we'll never lose Jesus, which I think is really important. Why are you guys laughing at me? But, but Jesus came born of a woman and, and, and in, this, in this manger and, and there's no room. He didn't come in a palace. He wasn't, he wasn't born into how we think royalty should be born into with, with a silver spoon in his mouth, so to speak. He came in very humble circumstances. The eternal divine of son of God taking on human flesh. The miracle of Christmas is the answer to the promise that we find when God cursed the serpent. It's not how he was supposed to come. But that's not all that is a part of the story. It's that we might receive adoption to sonship. And I, I don't know if you guys, I, I'm a sucker for a good adoption story. I love adoption stories. I, I, I have a friend who, 
who uh, was, was supposed to be aborted, but ended up being given up for adoption. He's not that much younger than me, and, and, uh, and, and, and he's a good friend. And, and I, I just, I love that story, how there was redemption in that adoption. And, and Paul uses that language here in Galatians, and he uses it in Romans, he uses it in other places as well. Kind of that idea of being adopted into a family. I mean, if you want to see me cry, then why would you want to see me cry? Okay, but it, never mind. If you did, then you could tell me a really sappy adoption story, and I promise you, I will cry because I love adoption stories. And they're so good, and there's so many stories like that. I was reading through all these adoption stories. I was thinking of one to share, and, I, and I, they, they were all so good, I just really couldn't pick one. And, and then as I, as I thought back, I, I, I go, you know, I have my own kind of interaction with adoption sort of growing up. When I was... You know, I, I was always had my biological mom around, but during my mom's second marriage, there was a time after a couple of years that she came to me and she says, she says, John, would, would you like to be adopted into the family? And I went, what do you mean adopted into, I, get, like you're giving me up for adoption? Like what's happening here? She said, no, 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 no. Would you like to be adopted into the family? Because your name, my name, my last name was different from everybody else's in the family. Their, their last name was Walters and my name was, was Byrne. And, and she used to know, would you like to be adopted into the family so that your name could be changed and you, you, would, be, you would be entered into the family? And, and I, I just blew my mind because I never even had, you know, I never thought about it. I was like, well, what do you, then you start to get like, you know, nervous. Like, am I not part of the family? Like, how does this work, Right starting to feel rejected and all those things and and that's not completely true i'm exaggerating that a little bit but the the point of it is that is this that there was a sense in which that i wasn't part of family. i didn't have the same name as everybody else everybody else was walters i was i was burned there was a sense in which i wasn't exactly part of the family and even though i'd never thought about it i certainly started to think about it at that point i didn't i didn't take her up on that for a whole host of reasons i won't go into I kept, my, I kept my name, and I said, no, no, I think, I think I'll just, in my mind, that, that was the only difference at the time. But, but there really would have been other difference. I would have entered into that family, and I would have been adopted by my stepdad. And I would have had rights as his son. Legal rights, like full rights, just as, much, just as many rights as, as part of the family as, as his son and his daughter had. I would, I would have been legally part and had claim to not only the family name but all the stuff that went with it and that's what's offered to us in in jesus is this idea of being adopted into the family john 8 44 re- reminds us that, that that there are there's a father right and, we, and there's the devil is a father and god is a father and it, it, and i am so thankful for this this, this whole idea, because some of you, maybe you had great dads, but some of you probably didn't have great dads. You had maybe a little bit of a circumstance like I had. You know, I had my biological dad who wasn't around much. Then my mom's second husband, who she ended up divorcing anyway. Probably a good thing I didn't take her up on the adoption thing, you know. And then she married another guy who's her current husband and, 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 uh, and all those kinds of things. And, and, and so there, I didn't really have like a stable dad who was this father figure throughout my life and, and kind of messed up view of dad. But when I was younger, I read Psalm chapter 68, verse 5. And it said, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. 
And I hung on to that verse because I understood what it was to be fatherless. Not that I didn't have one at all, but I had too many of them. I mean, the way I see it, I have three dads right now. I have, I have my biological dad, I have my stepdad, and I have God the Father. There's different dads, and John 8, 44 reminds us that not only is God the Father, but Satan is a father of sorts as well. You see, we choose what dad we want to have. One father offers slavery to sin and oppression, disguised in words of freedom. The other gives hope and freedom through his own sacrifice. And we have a choice to make. The reality is this. We find hope in our new heavenly father. That's where we find hope. Not everyone has this great relationship with the dad, but God offers it and says, and says I will be your father if you want. He gives you that choice to to adopt into the family of God, to become a co-heir with Christ. As a matter of fact, Galatians chapter 4, again, verse 6, it says this, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also his heir. Adoption into the family of God is an amazing miracle. The arrival of the eternal Son of God makes adoption possible. And the Spirit testifies to our sonship in Romans chapter 8, where Paul again talks about uh, adoption. We're going to start in verse 14. It says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. There's that term again. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs and and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We share in Jesus' glory, in the Son's glory, because we've been adopted into the family if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. I don't know where you're at this Christmas. You could be flying high, man. I mean, life is great. It's wonderful. It's one of those seasons in life. I hope that we all have some of those where where things are just good. The job's good. The finances are good. The the relationships are good. Everything seems to be kind of clicking along. There's no no health issues we're facing or whatever it is. And, And I hope we all have those seasons sometimes. And we should enjoy them and embrace them when we have them, but we should also recognize that this life comes with difficulties and pitfalls and hardships and that there's something at some point that you will face. Not that you should become obsessed with it. In fact, quite the opposite. You should just kind of know it's there. It's going to happen. Whatever it is, don't rush towards it. Don't run towards it. Don't become so focused on it. Like if you're a golfer, anybody, anybody a golfer in here? No, just, okay, a couple, all right, well, okay, there's a few. Well, in golf, if you're trying to golf over a water hazard, what's the one thing you don't think about? The water hazard. Why? Because if you're looking at, I just got to get it past the water hazard. I just, all right, I just got to get it past the water hazard. What happens every time? Kerplunk. Every time, right? You don't think about the water hazard. You think beyond it, right? You think about, I'm going to get it, 
I'm looking at the fairway. I'm looking at, at the green, whatever it is. That's in life. I don't, you shouldn't focus on the water hazard. Don't get so focused on the negative that's coming that you forget to enjoy the, the, the goodness that is there in that moment. Just know that something's going to happen. It could be financial strife. It could be relational strife. It could be job strife. It could, could be all kinds of different things. things. Things happen in this world. That's not the point. The point is, do you have hope? Are you co-heirs with Jesus? Do you have something that transcends the, the water hazard or the sand trap or whatever it is that, that comes in life? Do you have something beyond that? Do you have hope in, in, in being united with Jesus, being able to go, forgive the crassness of this, but hey, bro, what's up? Right? To Jesus. To call Jesus your brother because you are a co-heir with him. When you are adopted, you get a new family. You get a father who is loving, no matter what your earthly father is like. Jesus was born in difficult circumstances, and it's always helped me to think that he's kind of born into a blended family, because that's my story. So I like, I like it when Jesus' story kind of matches up with mine. So I think of as being born into a blended family, right? He had half-brothers, probably half-sisters, right? Like he had, he had, he had a stepdad. I kind of like that whole idea because I, I had some of those kinds of things. I had stepbrothers and stepsisters and, and still have stepbrothers and lots of stepbrothers and stepsisters and, and, and stepdads and all that kind of thing. And so, so kind of Jesus understood where I was coming from a, a little bit and, and he, was, he was born into that situation, and it kind of gives me a, a little bit of comfort. Maybe you were blessed and you had a great dad, but what I love about being brought into it, being adopted into the family of God, is that I have a heavenly father. And that I can cry out, Abba, Father. Now here's that term, and you read it, and some of you maybe have heard this, but that, that Abba, it's Aramaic actually, and, and, and the idea is this, that it's an intimate term for a dad. You know, my daughter, she's, she'll be 21 in a handful of weeks here, and she's married, and she, she comes over to the house. They were over yesterday, just kind of showed up, and it was great, and we love having them. And, you know, we fed them because that's what you do to keep them coming around, you know? I mean, they're kind of like, like wild animals. You just kind of feed them, and they keep showing up. So we fed them and, and all these things. But what, here's what I love about my relationship with my daughter, and it's not perfect by any means. I mean, she's really, I mean, I'm really messed up. But this is what I love about her relationship. She could come to me and she, she still, even though she's an adult and she's, you know, married and all these things, and, 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 but she still comes up and sometimes she'll still say, Daddy. And I used to, I used to hear other adult women call their, their father's daddy and I just thought it was weird. <laughs> I'm like, you're an adult. Get past the daddy thing, okay? But can I tell you something? I love it. I absolutely love it when she comes. She's like, she's like, Daddy, and I'm just like, she still loves me, right? It's true. That's what we read in the text here. When Paul says, we cry out to him, Abba, Father. We're saying Daddy to God. And I used, to think, I used to even think that was kind of a weird way of saying it, but that's really what it is. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a more intimate way of approaching God. We're invited into the family to say daddy to God, and it's all because the eternal divine son of God took on human flesh, and he was born in kind of this 
humble way. He became a human. He wasn't just fully God. He was fully human. He knows the world we live in. But I wonder if we take full advantage of our adoption into the family. See, your adoption is the story of your salvation. Embrace the privilege of your adoption. That's what I hope you do this Christmas, as you think about the eternal divine Son of God taking on human flesh, being born of a woman, coming into this world, being fully God and fully human, knowing every hurt and every sorrow and every difficulty that you've experienced, knowing the depths of that, and still going to the cross and shedding his blood and going to the grave and resurrecting, and you can look forward to an, an eternity with him brought into the royal family. You're brought into the royal, you're not just brought into a family, you're brought into the royal family of God. And you can now go to God. Abba, Father, Daddy. And you can do it now. And he opened his arms and he welcomed you in. Take advantage of that this Christmas. Amen? Amen. Dear God, you are good and gracious. Worthy of our worship. You are our Daddy. You are the God who loves